there, make your way to, uh, to the book of Philippians. It's, uh, it's 11 books into the New Testament toward the back of your Bibles, if you're wondering where it's at. Uh, you, can, uh, you can find it there. I have no idea how long we're going to be here. It's four chapters, uh, but it could be several months. We'll, uh, we'll let the Spirit lead on that. As you're making your way there, let me give you some background information about the book of Philippians. And, and I apologize up front. I'm going to feed you with a fire hose right now. So uh, just know that I'm going to give you a lot of information, um, but uh, just a lot of background information, a lot to understand about what this book says, what it's all about, uh, who wrote it, why he wrote it. Uh, all of those things. So it was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to the church in Philippi. Uh, Paul wrote this epistle somewhere around 61 AD, um, and, uh, and he's writing there to the church of Philippi that he planted 11 years approximately before that. Uh, he had gone out on his second missionary journey, and as he was on this second missionary journey, it's an interesting story, actually. You read about it in Acts chapter 16, and uh, we actually... Um, taught through the book of Acts not too long ago, so you can, you can listen to it online as well. But as you, as you read through Acts chapter 16, what you see is that Paul there on his second missionary journey, he wanted to, he had certain thing in his mind about where he wanted to go, how he felt God leading him. And so he really wanted to go to Asia. And the Spirit of God forbade him to go there. We don't know how God intervened, but whatever the case, God said no. Uh, and when God says no, the answer is no. So Paul didn't push it. Uh, and then uh, he wanted from there to, to go to Bithynia. And again, the Spirit of God said no. And again, we don't know how God said no, but he said no. And, uh, and so, okay, I can't go to Asia. I can't go to Bithynia. Well, then what happened was in late at night, the Lord appeared to, to Paul and gave him a vision of a, of a man from Macedonia. And, and this man was saying, come to Macedonia and, and help us. And so Paul, you know, recognized it immediately as the Lord uh, directing him. And so, so Paul said, all right, we're, we're going to, to Macedonia. Uh, and so uh, they make immediate uh, travel there. They, they get there in town. And, and the way that it's written there in Acts chapter 16, basically, uh, Paul describes it there, Luke writing uh, the, the book of Acts, uh, as Macedonia being the foremost city. Uh, of, or rather Philippi being the foremost city of Macedonia. And so they went in there, and then what happened was going in there, typically what Paul would do when he would go into a new area to, to preach the gospel, he would go to the Jews first. And so he would go to the local synagogue. Well, as, as you read in Acts chapter 16, Paul didn't go to the local synagogue. He went down to the river where they where they gathered on the Sabbath day for prayer. And what that tells us is that there were not a whole lot of Jews in this area. Um, there, because basically, if there were 20 or more Jewish men in a town, they would build a synagogue. So we know there's certainly less than 20 Jewish men. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it doesn't really appear that there's very many very many Jewish men at all, because what happens is Paul goes down to the riverside, and, and he, he's there to preach the gospel to those who have assembled to pray on the Sabbath day, and so he, gets, he finds these women, and so, you know, Paul, he needs somebody with a pulse, he's like, let me tell you about Jesus, you know, so he's there, and he finds these women, he starts sharing the gospel with these women, and there's this gal named Lydia who, who hears it, 
And so Lydia, she's a, a shrewd businesswoman, and, and she responds to the gospel, gets radically saved, and she persuades Paul and Silas. She says, hey, come and stay with me and, and live in my household. You know, I'll take care of, of you know, your needs while you're here. And, and um, basically, small little growth group starts right there at Lydia's house. So Paul, you know, now finding a foothold, finding, you know, receptive, those receptive to, to the gospel, he starts this work in Philippi, and he goes out day by day, and as he's going out, the, the text tells us that there's this little slave girl who's possessed with a demonic spirit. She has this d- demonic spirit of divination. And so her owners would use her to do fortune telling and stuff. And so what happens is this little gal starts following Paul and his group around everywhere they go. And she, she, she's crying out all the time. Hey, listen, everybody, listen to these guys. They're servants of the most high God. And they're gonna tell us you know, how to know God and all. And so there she is. And finally, about several days into it, Paul turns around He's like, I've had about enough out of you, you know? Uh, And so he rebukes this demonic spirit that's in this gal, casts the spirit out of her. She's delivered. Well, her owners were upset about it because now Paul just interfered with their business. Uh, Paul has this effect on people, you know? Uh, And so he he goes, and and now this guy's, these owners are mad at Paul. They have him beaten and thrown into jail. Um, which is problematic because, you know, in addition to Paul being a Jew, he also happens to be a Roman citizen, and it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be beaten or to, 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 to be struck in that way. They, they were afforded a fair trial. Uh, and so that factored into what would happen later. But basically, he's beaten, and he and Silas are put into the stocks. They're, they're chained up in, in jail uh, there in Philippi, very uncomfortable situation. And that cool thing transpires as you read it in Acts 16, where about midnight, Paul and Silas being chained, being in prison, being, having been beaten with open wounds on their back, they begin cursing God and saying, you've forsaken us. And no, they, they worship, the text says. They're worshiping God. They're singing worship songs to the Lord in prison. And about midnight, the Lord causes this great earthquake to come and the, the chains are tossed off them. The doors are thrown open. And I hadn't intended to say this, but just that, that, that picture for us that, you know, maybe, you know, some of you here today, you come, you feel like you've been beaten. You've got wounds. And man, sometimes the best medicine is just to worship the Lord, just to worship him for who he is. And so, so, so Paul and Silas in that place, worshiping the Lord, the Lord throws their chains off, throws open the prison doors. Now, the Philippian jailer at this point freaks out because, you know, having gone through the earthquake and having all the doors opened up, you know, he's positive that all the prisoners have escaped. And for a jailer, a Roman jailer, if your prisoners escaped, then they'd kill you. That was a pretty good incentive for you not to fall asleep on the job. And so this guy thinks, I'm a dead man. So he grabs his spear. He's going to kill himself. And Paul, eh, stop, don't, 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 don't kill yourself. And so uh, he says, we're all here. And so Paul, you know, works his magic as he always does, proclaims the gospel. The guy gets radically saved. He has Paul into his house. He and his whole household are saved. And so now Paul's got a pretty cool core group going on. He's got Lydia and her household, and he's got this Philippian jailer in his household. And so the, the work of God begins to spread. And, and what happens at this point is that, you know, the, the, the jailer 
um, basically gets word from the magistrates after all of this transpires. They, they find out uh, all of this and they go, hey, just tell them to get out of here. Just tell them to leave. Um, and, uh, you know, because what they found out was that Paul was a Roman citizen and they knew that they were in trouble because they had beaten him. So they're like, eh, just, just, go, just go away. Paul's like, I'm not going away. And you can't do anything about it. I'm sticking around. I'm going to tell I think there's some people who want to know about Jesus in this town. And so Paul just boldly says, you know, what, are you going to beat me again? You know, no, I got you over a barrel. You know, you're going to get in trouble. So he just, he's going for it. So Paul establishes this church in Philippi, and it's this awesome thing. And as Paul does, you know, after he gets the church going, he raises up leaders in the church, and, and then turns them over to the Lord, raises up his replacement, as it were, and he's, he's on to the next town because, you know, he's a church planter. He's out to, to plant churches to spread the gospel. So his relationship, though, with Philippi continued over the years. They were very supportive of his ministry, very supportive of his work. We read about it in 2 Corinthians, and we'll read about it also in Philippians chapter 2 if I ever get there. Um, but um, we read about how the Philippians were very involved in Paul's ministry. They were very encouraging of him, very supporting of him. And, um, and just, you know, not only will they go and visit him, but they also help him financially with the work that he has to do. Um, huge source of help to, to Paul. And so his relationship with, with the Philippians is a very intimate, very close, very personal relationship. Um, I had uh, dinner last night. We, we, uh, we had a missions fellowship, and we get a lot of different people together from, you know, internationally from different cultures and so on, and, and we gather for a missions fellowship. It was awesome. It was uh, the second time we've done this. And, uh, and in the course of, of this, I, I'm having a conversation with the, the niece of one of our members, and, and she's a missionary, has been for years. And she was talking to me about the impact uh, of short-term mission trips done in a very strategic way. She said, you know, that there's a local church and they, they take, you know, just a, just a couple of their people. They travel in pairs, you know, for accountability's sake. But what they'll do is they'll go and they'll visit missionaries. And really, they, they go, their only agenda when they go is to love on and to minister to the missionaries that are in country. Just to go there for fellowship and encouragement and support. Uh, and she said, you have no idea how, how ministering that is to a missionary who's in country. The, you know, loneliness, one of the biggest things that missionaries struggle with. And here, these people coming in, just, just to come alongside and say, we haven't forgotten you. We love you. We're encouraging you. Uh, and by the way, we can all play that role with the technology that we have today. I encourage you guys, find out, you know, the missionaries that you could just encourage. Send an email to, just, just lift up in prayer. Just for them to know, you know what? You haven't been forgotten. And we love you. And this is, <clears throat> this is what the Philippian church did with Paul, is to say, we love you. We, we remember you. We honor you. We support you. And so, so they had this awesome relationship. And actually, that's the occasion and the purpose for Paul's writing this epistle that we're going to study through. Because what had happened is the Corinthians had sent a guy by the name of Epaphroditus, it's easy to say, say that three times fast. Epaphroditus, you know your parents don't like you when they name you Epaphroditus. But 
they, they send this guy, Epaphroditus, to come with some financial support, but also just to encourage him in the work as he's imprisoned there uh, in Rome. And it just, you know, ministers to his heart. And so that's really the occasion of him writing this, this epistle to them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a, a thank you letter of sorts, but it's, it's so much more than that, being inspired of the Holy Spirit. And, and here's the thing, as we're going to find out in the coming months, that the book of Philippians and it contains some of the most powerful and most oft-quoted scriptures of the entire Bible. Uh, I, was, I was telling Cody, I was, Pastor Cody, I was going to teach through Philippians, and, and he's, he's like, man, you know, that's what, Philippians is one of those books that, you know, if somebody asks you, hey, where's this verse? It's probably in Philippians, you know? Just these powerful verses. I have three that I, that I have as citing as an example. In the book of Philippians, <clears throat> we read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The book of Philippians we read and we'll read today, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Uh, the book of Philippians is where we get the, the, the scripture, be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the God of all peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so there are these power packed verses in these four short uh, chapters uh, and, and it's just an amazing thing. Now, the central theme of the book of Philippians, so you might want to write this down, you write it at the top of Philippians in your margin there or in your notes. The central theme of this book is joy. Uh, and uh, Paul uses the word joy or a derivative of it, rejoice, 14 times in four chapters. 14 times in four chapters. It's the most number of times that the word joy or a derivative of it is used in any New Testament book. Uh, and Paul uses them here in, in, in these four little chapters of the book of Philippians. The key verse is Philippians 4.4, 4, which says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, the dictionary defines joy this way. It says that joy is a deep feeling or condition of contentment. Joy is a deep feeling or condition of contentment. Um, now, uh, joy is different than happiness. You know, as Americans, you know, we have, as part of our Constitution, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, I, and it's kind of wise that they phrased it that way. It's the pursuit of happiness. It's kind of like, good luck with that, you know? <laughs> Go for it. Well, you know, whatever floats your boat, man, good luck. Seeking happiness, because it's this elusive thing, right? Happiness, it's conditional. It, it's, it's conditioned on, on, our, on our circumstances. Joy isn't conditional whatsoever. Jo joy is a quiet, confident, unshakable contentment. And sometimes it's that way in the very face of pain and difficulty. Some of the most joyful people that you will ever meet have absolutely no reason circumstantially to be joyful. And yet they have discovered this, this secret of contentment in the Lord. And they're some of the most joyful people that you will ever meet. And, and really, that's what we're going to look to discover here in, in the book of Philippians, chiefly, mainly, how can I have joy? Now, I want to illustrate this with a, with a story. It, it serves as, a, as an illustration for this concept of joy and really as an overarching illustration of, of the book of Philippians. Um, and so I'll introduce it this way with, with, uh, with a story. It's a, it's a true story, and maybe you've heard it before. November 1873, there's a Chicago lawyer. His name is Horatio Spafford. 
And uh, he and his wife, Anna, are going through, in this time of their life, the most trying, difficult, weary, and heavy-hearted time of their entire life. Uh, A couple of years prior to this date, they had lost most of their savings. They 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 had taken their savings and they bought properties. Uh, and they'd lost most of those properties in the Chicago fire. And the very next year, their four-year-old son, his only son, contracted scarlet fever and died. And so Horatio and Anna, profoundly weary, very difficult season of life. Horatio, now here a year after the death of his son, two years after the loss of most of their possessions, he says, man, we need to get away. We need a break. And so he books a vacation for the family, a long extended vacation, much awaited, far overdue. He says, we're going to go to, we're going to, go to England. We're going to, we're going to take a ship over there. We're going to spend you know, several months there. And, uh, and we're just going to, we're just going to re- recuperate. And so uh, you know, him being a, a busy lawyer, a successful lawyer, as, as he, he does this and he takes the steps to, you know, to, um, to get ready for the, for the trip, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, he gets busy and he has this, this urgent matter that comes up. And, uh, and he didn't want to cancel the trip. He didn't want to ruin his, his wife's vacation and, and his four daughters, uh, his four remaining children, their vacation. And so he told him, you guys go on ahead and I'll, I'll take a later ship and I'll meet up with you. And so they did. And midway in their crossing, their ship collided with another ship. Both ships sank within 10 minutes and over 300 people lost their lives. On the deck of that ship, in those terrifying few minutes as the ship was going down, with her daughters Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta, Anna's last memory was holding her baby and her baby being ripped out of her arms by the water and all of them being swept out to sea. And they all would have died and all the daughters did die And Anna herself, unconscious underneath the water, when miraculously one of the boards from one of the ships came floating up, floated up underneath her body and lifted her above the water. And so she plucked out of the water unconscious but alive. And she would recover. Of course, she would would be inconsolable. Nine days later, Horatio received a telegram from Anna. It contained two words. Saved alive and he's heartbroken and you can imagine just devastated and so Horatio boarded the the next ship he could and he's heading over there as urgently as he can and a few days into the, 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 the voyage the ship slows to a stop and he's called to the deck and the captain tells Horatio as near as we can tell Mr. Spafford this is the this is the place where your family's ship went down. This, we're, in, we're over the exact spot where your daughters died. And overcome with emotion there as, as he just, and you can, I mean, you, I was going to say you can't imagine, but you can't imagine. And he's there, he's on the ship, and he's, and he's just looking out. And at that moment, a scripture a story from 2 Kings chapter 4 just pops into his mind. It's this beautiful story of this Shulamite woman who God had blessed with a child and the child had died. The child died in her lap and, and heartbroken in her anguish, she came to the Lord. 
she presented her child to the Lord. And she uttered these words that, that were resonating now in Horatio's heart. It is well. And in that spot, in that moment, God met him on that ship and he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. And as we begin this book this morning, I want to ask you, is it well with your soul today? I wonder, what are the burdens that you carried into church with you today? What are you anxious about? What is it that threatens to rob you of your joy today? I want you to keep that in mind. I want you to keep that in heart. And I want you to present that to the Lord as we begin the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you, for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you're a, if you're a note taker, you might want to circle that word bondservants nearby you write this, write slave. That's, that's what that word bondservants mean. Slave. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't put joy and slavery in the same context. Paul starting this, he's writing this book on joy. And he says, right out the gate, I'm a slave of Jesus. And you go, whoa, wait, man, how is that possibly consistent with joy? Well, here's the first thing. My first point, you might want to write it down. In order to find true joy, everything starts with what or who you're enslaved to. In order to find true joy, you have to determine who or what am I a slave to. And I, I challenge you with that question. Just, just write, write it down. Take a walk with it. Maybe if you don't know the answer this morning, this week. Who or what are you a slave to. Jesus said this. He said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Paul understood this. Paul understood that he owed everything that he had, that he was, that he ever would be. He owed it all to Jesus Christ. Here's what he said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter two. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, here's the truth, guys. The truth is, is that we are all slaves to something. 
Romans 6.16 proves that. It says, don't you realize (coughs) that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. And so you're either going to be a slave to your flesh, or you're going to be a slave to God. That's just how it goes. Now, I'll illustrate that with a story. There, there's this, this young man, his name's Mark, and, uh, and he's, he's moved away from home, and he's invited his mom to come out and visit him. And as his mom comes out to visit him, he's, they're going to have dinner together at Mark's house. And to her great dismay, her, her young son uh, has this very beautiful roommate named Julie. And she's like, who is this? He's like, oh, that, this is just my roommate, mom. Her name's Julie. Now, mom, I just want you to know that there's, there's nothing inappropriate going on here, okay? Julie and I, we, we are just friends and it's just, this is a business relationship. I needed a roommate. I put an ad, you know, on Craigslist. She responded to it. It's, it's cool. There's, there's nothing inappropriate here, mom. And so, you know, mom's watching them like a hawk and uh, she's, you know, just going through And Well, she seems persuaded by what Mark has told her. And uh, so they, they end up having a lovely dinner. Julie's there and, and all, and, and, you know, okay, goodbye. And, they, and she leaves. Well, a couple of weeks go by, and Julie approaches Mark, and she says, Hey, um, I can't find my gravy ladle anywhere. I've looked everywhere for this thing. And, uh, and, and Mark's like, I don't know where it's at. She goes, Well, no, here's the thing. This, I, this is crazy, but I know I had it the night your mom was here. You don't think your mom stole my gravy ladle, do you? And he's like, no, I, I can't imagine that she would do that. But, you know, they go over it and over it, and they're talking about it. And pretty soon she's like, Mark's thinking, maybe she did. I can't believe my mom's a klepto. So he, re, he writes her an email. He's like, look, mom, I'm not saying you did take the gravy ladle. And I'm not saying you didn't take the gravy ladle. But the fact remains that, you know, since you came, the gravy ladle's missing. Well, two days later, his mom sent this reply. She says, Mark, I'm not saying you are sleeping with Julie, and I'm not saying you're not sleeping with Julie, but the fact remains, if Julie was sleeping in her own bed, she'd have found her gravy ladle by now. (laughs) Now, (laughs) that makes for a funny story, right? See, here's the sad Here's the sad truth of that story. The sad part of that story is that some of you here today, you're shacking up. Some of you here today, you're out partying. Some of you here today, you were out partying last night. I might even be talking a little too loud for you this morning, if you know what I'm saying. Some of you here today, you are a slave to pornography. It's not so funny anymore, is it? See, and here's the thing. You don't even realize it. It's like, you know, when I used to smoke two packs a day, I didn't start smoking saying, I'm going to get enslaved to cigarettes. Somebody offered me one and I thought, eh, what, what could it hurt? 
And then the next thing you know, you're enslaved to it. And they, there are some of y'all here today, you are enslaved to sin right now. Here's what James said. James said, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And so here's what Paul says in this epistle of joy. In dire circumstances, he says, me, I'm with Jesus. And I'm enslaved to him. My joy is full. I ask you this morning, what are you a slave to? Because the condition of the joy that you have in your life, man, it starts there. And think about this. The psalmist said this. The psalmist said, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, understand this, that Paul, as he writes this, he's doing so from prison. He is imprisoned, he's chained to a Roman guard. By all outward appearances, he has no freedom. But where is he? Well, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. He's chained to Jesus. He might be chained to this guard, but he's chained, spiritually speaking, to the Lord. And there in his path, being chained to the Lord, being in the path of life, in his presence, Paul has fullness of joy. He's been beaten multiple times. He's been shipwrecked. He's been stoned. He's been falsely charged. He's been wrongly imprisoned. And now he's facing the death penalty. And Paul, here in this place, writes an epistle that says, Rejoice always. And again, I will say rejoice. Amazing. And being a slave to Christ, being someone filled with joy, Paul continues in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if you grew up in the Catholic Church like I did, you read saints and you think statue at church, or you think the little thing on your dashboard, or the thing in your mom's garden, right? It's not that. Saint is those of us who have given our life to Jesus Christ. You are a saint. That's your title. Get used to it. To all the saints in Jesus Christ who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, those that Paul put in place, he's writing them. He says in verse 2, grace to you. Grace to you. That word grace, you might want to circle it. It's, this is the epitome. This summarizes best what we believe about God as Christians. Grace. See, here's the thing. We are sinners at our core, but God is gracious. We talked about this in the message last Sunday. By the way, last Sunday was awesome. Thank you guys for showing up. It was great. But, but the Bible says that we're sinners and that God is gracious. And that Christianity, unlike other religions, it's not a religion of do good, try harder. It's not a religion of, hey, you know, you get your second or your third chance through reincarnation. Good luck with that. I hope you can figure it out. It's not a, a religion of, hey, you need to go pay off, you know, your karmic debt. You know, you've, you, you've you got bad karma and you gotta, you gotta pay it off. It's not about, hey, you gotta go to purgatory and spend some time in detention and figure out how you're gonna get this thing together. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is, man, hey, 
It's not, hey, I hope someday you can work it out. It's God's already worked it out. And then it's in this place where, hey, God is a God of grace. And I come to this God of grace and I say, I blew it. Would you forgive me? I repent. God convicts me of my sin. I repent and God is gracious with me. That word repent, it's a, it's, a, it's a fancy biblical word. It simply means to turn. It just, I was going in this direction. God, I'm making a turn. I repent. Forgive me. And the Bible says that God does forgive us. He gives us grace. And, and he gives us this undeserved favor, this unmerited love, this absolute grace. And that means two things. First of all, and we looked at the first one really last week in the message, that we receive God's grace humbly. And last, last week, we had, we had dozens of people coming forward to receive God's grace humbly, to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures, conquering sin and death. I believe that he offers that salvation to me by faith. If I will just confess him, receive him, surrender, if I will repent, And so we had many come forward who humbly did that. They just humbly came forward and received God's grace. That's the first thing. The second thing it means is that we share that grace gladly. And that's the part that I want to talk to you about for a little while. Sharing God's grace gladly. Because here's what happens in our lives. So many of us were typified by, I've received God's grace. I'm so grateful, Lord, to receive your grace. And I'm pissed at you, man. You've got, you know, I'm upset with you. And, and, and so we don't, we, we're, we're recipients of his grace, but we're not always ambassadors of his grace, are we? We're, I, I need grace for just using the word pissed right there. Give me some grace. Sorry, I just let it slip of the tongue. It just came out. <laughs> Please don't send me an email. I, you know, but no, we've received God's grace. Oh, and then, well, we have opportunities every day to extend his grace And the question is, do we or don't we? See, because here's how it works. You sin against me and you repent. Well, that's what I did to God, isn't it? I sinned against God. I repented. And what did God do with me? Well, he gave me grace. And so what does that mean? That means you get grace too. That's what it means. But do you always get grace? No, we're we're not always... We're not always so good at that. And so, you know, the idea here is, and I guess I would add this to that. I want to emphasize God gives grace to the repentant. That's important. See, because if you never repent, you don't get to live forever in heaven with God. It's not like he gives you grace if you don't repent, right? If you don't turn. There's an obligation to repent, and, and it, let me just tell you, it's the same way in our earthly relationships. It's the same way. See, I can't just like say to you, oh, you're a Christian, give me grace and never repent in the things that I've done relationally in our lives. There's going to be a fracturing and a disconnection of the relationship. Yes, you have the obligation to forgive, but what happens to our relationship if I never repent? Now, if I never repent, the, the relationship remains fractured. It remains broken. And listen, some of you guys today, you've got relationships that are fractured and broken. See, because here's the thing. So many people, they they want grace without repenting. And what we need to understand is that the the two of them are inextricably linked together. 
See, you may not realize it, but in all actuality, repentance is a form of God's grace as well. Repentance is actually a gift, a wonderful gift from God that he gives to us. See, and the result of that gift of repentance that that God gives to us is Paul's next point here in verse 2 where he says, he says grace and what's the result? Peace. The, 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 the twins of the New Testament, every time you see, you know, a salutation, grace to you and peace, they're always going together and they're always in that order. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. I extend grace, the result is peace. I receive grace, the result is peace. This is how this works. See, man is not in our natural state at peace with God. We're just not. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. The Bible says in over, over 600 locations, the Bible references the fact that we are objects of God's wrath, that we're separated from God by our sin. And, you know, the idea though is that, you know, if we repent, we will receive grace, we will receive cleansing, we'll enjoy peace in relationship with God, and the exact same pattern exists in our relationships with one another. See, when we repent, grace is given, there's peace in our relationship. And so, again, just the $100,000 question for you, your little takeaway, who ain't you at peace with today? See, the thing is, I don't know all of you, and I don't have to. You're, you're here, you're breathing, you have a pulse. There's someone you ain't getting along with. I'll just tell you that. Because most people have in some place in their life, in their experience, somebody who we're, who we're not so happy with. Somebody that we're not at peace with. And I know this is true. Some of you, you've got the person's face right there, their name's floating in your brain, and you're like, thanks a lot. I could have gone all day without thinking about that moron. Ted, thank you very much, right? You're welcome. And, th- and that's just true. So here's the thing. This same pattern exists. Here's what I want you to understand. That in all likelihood, if you have that person's face in your head, if you've got that relationship where there's, you're at odds, where you're not getting along, in all likelihood, it's there because there has either been there, uh, because there has been sin without repentance or grace. Here's how it's gone down. Either you didn't repent or they didn't extend grace or vice versa. They didn't repent and you didn't extend grace. It's just that simple. A friend of mine says Christianity is simple. It's just not easy. And that's the truth. It's never more true than in our relationships. It's that simple and it's that difficult. Because there, if, if in our relationships there is a grace that, ex, that, if there's a repentance, if there's grace that is, is extended, then the result is always peace. Repentance, grace, peace. That's how it goes. And so when you have repentance, when you give the granting of grace, the result is peace. And you don't feel the knot in your stomach when you see that person. You don't feel the blood starting to boil when you read their little pithy post on Facebook that makes you want to just put your fist through the back of their head, right? There's not, I'm just speaking to the girls here. No, um, (laughs) but you know, there's, you, come on. I'm just talking about the real emotional things and let's, let's not sugarcoat it. It's there, it's real. Let's talk about it. We get upset with others. And so repentance, grace, peace, this is the model. And here's what the Bible says in the book of Hebrews. 
It says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so there's this idea, hey, grace and peace. And notice in verse 3 that grace and peace then lead to memories. Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You see, here's the thing. If you don't have a gospel-based relationship, if you don't have a surrendered life that says, I'm going to live in obedience with God's word, and you and me together, we're going to have the gospel as the basis, as at the center of our interaction with one another, one that has grace and peace that's centered on Jesus, well, then what's going to happen is many of your memories are going to be angry memories, bitter memories. You're going to have just a whole stockpile of bitterness, anger, resentment, hurts, wounds. And some of you, you know, you, you know people like this. I mean, their whole life is just this whole, you know, file. It's just a list of people that they've got an axe to grind with, and they carry this thing around with them every waking minute. And it's a horrible way to live. You see, if we don't allow grace and peace to be that thing that typifies our life, then our memories are going to, our relationships are going to be tainted. Our memories are going to be bad. But God has given to us in Christ the opportunity to have those memories redeemed. And, and I'll illustrate it this way. Years ago, I was preaching a message uh, in our vineyard campus and uh, the message was on forgiveness. And I, and I was talking about this concept, about how, you know, we have relationships that get fractured. And that, that um, you know, some of us, we've got a whole strew, a whole, you know, long list of people that we've, that we've you know, offended or that we've violated or that have violated us and and so I'm just preaching this message on forgiveness, and I'm like, just get it over already, you know, just ask for forgiveness. Well, right in the middle of my message, and I'm preaching this, this guy gets up and walks out. And I'm like, swell, you know, here comes an email, or he's going to, you know, be upset, or I made this guy mad somehow. Well, what I didn't know is the guy was going out to make a phone call. He's going out to call his daughter. They'd been estranged for like 10 years. And... He has the conversation in the parking lot while I'm still preaching, comes back in between the services to tell me, you know what? I, I asked my daughter for forgiveness. The relationship's back on track. I've got a couple of grandchildren that I didn't know I had. We've got an appointment to get together. This is several years ago. God doing this neat, awesome, redeeming work. Now this man has three years or so, a couple of years anyway, of memories that now he's storing up. Not the anger, the bitter, the resent, the hurt, the... No. See, Paul settled the issue of lordship in his life. Jesus was his master, and he was the slave. The Lord gave Paul grace, and Paul decided, I'm going to extend that grace to others. And living out that grace led to peace in Paul's life, and that peace led to new memories, redeemed memories. And I would say to you, what are the memories that you're carrying around? What are the things that you're holding on to? What are those wrongs, those hurts, whatever? Can I tell you, you can bury them. There is, there is grace and there is peace and there is restoration available to you in the Lord. Grace, 
repentance. It's just, it's just available to you. What's keeping you from doing it? Paul goes on to say in verse 4 that it all culminates in joy. He says, I'll pick it up in context. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Verse 3, verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, here's a guy sitting in prison. Here is a guy facing death, no money, no friends, no, you know, no friends close by anyway. He's got no wife, he's got no children, he's got no grandchildren, but he's got joy. He has unmistakable, overflowing joy. He mentions joy over a dozen times. Like I said, he mentions joy more than any other New Testament uh, epistle. And that begs a question that needs to be answered this morning by us. How could this guy speak of joy? How could he possibly, in his circumstances, speak of joy? We understand that joy doesn't have to do with your circumstances, but how did he do it? Well, here's the thing. Paul understands that joy is just not a feeling, that it's a lifestyle. Paul said this to the Galatians. I read it to you once already. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm going to share a quote with you. We'll put it up on the screen. I want you to write it down. I'm going to say it a couple of times because it's important. Joy is a lifestyle that we acquire in the presence of God through an intimate knowledge that often only comes through the fellowship of his sufferings. Let me say that again. Joy is a lifestyle that we acquire in the presence of God through an intimate knowledge that often only comes through the fellowship of his sufferings. Guys, I need you to get that today. I need you to understand that. I need you to, to meditate on that because here's what's gonna happen in your life. What happens is that we go through times of trial. We go through times of hardship. We go through a situation like uh, Horatio went through. And what, what Satan will do in that moment is he will say something is profoundly wrong and you better be very afraid. And it rocks our world and we get to the place where we say, no, no, there's, there is, there's something wrong. But see, what we need to understand, and Paul's going to talk about this in the coming chapters in, in the book of Philippians, that we know him by the fellowship of his sufferings. He reveals himself to us as we go through suffering. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you have been through profound trials and you know that God used that trial in your life to bring you to a place where you knew God better and you trusted him more and God was able to move and work in you and through you in ways that he never could have had he not allowed you to go through the suffering trial that you went through. One of the mentors in my life was Romaine, the assistant uh, pastor to Pastor Chuck. And, and, you know, I had a few occasions where I was able to sit down with him and just pick his brain and learn from him. And, and a lot of people were scared of him because he was an old, you know, Marine and he would just look right through you and he'd say what he thought, which oftentimes was what you didn't want to hear. You know, just a really tough guy. 
But he had a quote. He said this one time. He said, I love to watch a man go through the meat grinder of life because I see what comes out the other side. And some of you right now, maybe you're in the meat grinder and maybe right now you're wondering, you're hanging on by a thread and, you're, and maybe you're ready to give up. And what I would say is don't. Don't give up because God is using that trial in your life to bring you to a place of incredible fruit, fruitfulness, of incredible use, usefulness to the Lord. And it's a difficult trying time, but God knows exactly what he's doing. Joy is a lifestyle that we acquire in the presence of God through an intimate knowledge that often only comes through the fellowship of his sufferings. And I don't know about you, and I'm going to share another quote. This one rocked my world, but here's what typifies me more often. The difference between where you are and where God wants you to be is the painful experience that you refuse to endure. This changed my life because I was in a moment where I went, wait, wait, God's got me in a place and I'm saying, that's it. I go no farther because that is, it's painful to hear. And this threshold means, man, I, no, I'm out. I'm not, I don't want to endure that. And God says, hey, no, I, I want to take you through that. The difference between where you are and where God wants me to be is that threshold. I ask you, what's the painful experience that you refuse to endure today? Because there is a work, guys, that God wants to do. And so Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Some of your translations say, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Guys, God's doing a completing work in you. And I want to encourage you in that today. And for some of you, you know, this emphasis on relationship and grace and peace. And maybe for you, the completing work is, man, you need to swallow your pride and you need to humble yourself and you need to make a phone call and ask for somebody's forgiveness. Maybe it is, I just need to forgive that person as God in Christ has forgiven me. They're, they're just, I, I just have to forgive. I got to get over it. I got to turn that thing over. Maybe, you know, you got a whole record of wrongs that you've kept and, you know, when we went through 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says that love keeps no record of wrongs. You know, and maybe you've got, you know, all the files and all the, and maybe you just need to hit the delete and get rid of those things. I don't know what it is, but you do. See, there's a completing work that God wants to do. And I'll close with this illustration and we'll, we'll partake of communion as we take a walk with this challenging thought. <clears throat> the Greeks in their Olympics had a very interesting kind of race. The race was won not by the person who crossed the finish line first. It was, run, or it was won by the person who crossed the finish line with their torch still lit. Christians, we're to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And we're to let the light of Christ, the fire of our faith, burn brightly within us. And as you run the race, and I don't know about you, but I just have that visual of a guy running with that. Have you ever tried to do that? You ever light a candle and try and go across the room maybe to light another candle? And it's like, whoa, you know? And that's such a picture of my faith sometimes. It's like sometimes I'm going quick and sometimes it's like, oh, wait, wait, the fire's about to go out and I got to kindle that flame. And that's what this is all about, guys. As we go through this study and as we spend the next several months going through this epistle, 
It's about letting the fire, kindling that fire, fanning it into a flame and going through these times of trial, through these circumstances in our life so that we can have joy. It is well with my soul. Is it well with yours?